right, Josh, this is what the Lord's laid on my heart. Romans 1, 8 through 17. And uh, looking forward to getting into it here. We have my friend Paul here, Pastor Babel's head, on Baptist Church, visiting with us, which means either he got fired, he's taking a rest, or he just sneaked away. Probably one of those three. I'm not sure which one it is. Good to have you here. Some other folks visiting with us today. It's, uh, it's great to, uh, to be in the Word uh, with you. We are looking at the book of Romans, the theme of the righteousness of God for the nations, for the Gentiles, and Jews, and beyond uh, the whole world here. And uh, it's, it was exciting to be in that last week and look into uh, the, uh, uh, the first few verses here in the introduction. <clears throat> so if you turn to Romans 1, if you have it here, we're going to get into the Word. Why did Paul write this book? The awesome thing here is that these verses 8 through 15 are some of the most neglected verses in the book of Romans. You think about the words of Romans and the and the teaching that, that uh, so much teaching that's come to the book of Romans, and, and it, it would become quite aware of, of chapter one and the downward spiral, and then chapter two, and then chapter three. Uh, that all of sin, chapter 4, righteousness that comes through faith, 5, what the second Adam did, the first Adam had wrongly done, and then 6 and 7 and 8, the spirit-filled life, the new created life, here in chapters 9 through 11, God's purposes for Jew and Gentile Israel, and, uh, and, and Gentiles, and how that relates to the church, and then chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, right? I beseech you by the mercy of God, you present your body as a living sacrifice. So die to live uh, here for Jesus Christ. And then um, chapter 13 and the, the role of government and etc. here, and then 14 and 15, how to relate to one another with uh, disputable differences. I don't know that I've heard much from verses 8 through 15. It's kind of a thing to skip over to get to the good stuff, right, in Romans. But it's there for a purpose. It's intended here uh, to tell us why Paul wrote the book. So keep your eyes open here as we work through this as to the clues as to why Paul wrote this massive letter. It's his longest letter. His, his magnus opus here of the gospel. I'm going to introduce, here, uh, introduce this text here with, with a story that will help relate Paul to this, to this message here. Alfred Mendes Enlisted in the British Army in January 1916 at the tender age of 19 during World War I. He was soon sent off to France to train to be a signaler. Signalers were responsible for transmitting uh, communications from the front lines back to the command position and then vice versa. And often it laid down line, uh, it involved laying down landlines in dangerous enemy territory. It was in October 12, 1917, just about a week ago or so, it would, would be the anniversary of this, that Alfred faced his most daunting test yet. Hundreds of British soldiers had been, had been uh, charged with, with reclaiming the village, a village in Belgium from the Germans. It was a very important location from a strategic standpoint, and Allied forces wanted to have it back under their command. And the British troops decided they were going to attack on a day where it was pouring down rain. And they suffered heavy losses on that day. 158 men in Alfred's battalion of 484 were killed or wounded or MIA. 
No one could locate these missing men as they were scattered across miles of, 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 of waterlogged, sucking foxholes and craters in the mud and quicksand. They were stuck in the middle of no man's land and they were unable to communicate their positions back to the allies in the safe zone without being killed. And when Alfred Mendes, commanding officer, asked for a volunteer to do the almost certain fatal job of running out to locate the positions of the surviving men and then report back to the troops, Alfred was the one who volunteered for the job. Miraculously, he survived and he located a number of survivors and enabled them to be rescued. And it was an act that later won him the Military Medal for Bravery in England. And his action became inspiration for a film that came out recently in 1917. And the writer and director of that film, his name is Sam Mendes. And he tells the source of that film, he said, I had a story that was a fragment told to me by my grandfather who fought in the First World War. His grandfather was Alfred. It's a story of a messenger who had a message to carry. That's exactly what this letter is about. It's a story of a messenger who risked his life because of the greatness of this message, the deliverance this message provides. At the moment of salvation, in the moment of life after salvation here, that the commanding officer, the Son of God and Paul, Paul and all believers to carry this greatest message ever given because it's a life-giving message. It's a rescuing message. It's a delivering message. And it's going to involve risk. It's going to involve danger. It's going to involve me saying no to myself and yes to my commanding officer. But it leads to the salvation of lives and the deadliest battle in history. Let me give you a little backdrop for this passage here. Um, you can see on this map there on the right you see Antioch in the east. On the left you see Rome up in the northwest there. Antioch was a foundational staging base for the progress of the gospel. I read about that church in Acts chapter 13 and that's where God sent Paul as he was ministering there with Barnabas to go out to this region. And then Rome here is the place where he had it been. And the long story short, why Paul wants to get to Rome is so that when you read in Acts chapter 15, so that Rome becomes a launching base for the progress and multiplication of the gospel to the west, to Spain. And so he wants Rome to be like another Antioch. Antioch is a pretty amazing church. It was kind of the first Gentile church, so to speak. Jerusalem was where the church started there, and it sent out uh, people, but, and, and, and the gospel expanded from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria. But Antioch was where it started to go to the other ends of the earth. And the amazing thing about Antioch was that it was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And God used it tremendously for the progress of the gospel. And in Rome, Paul wants to see this happen as well. And so he writes chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, telling them why he's writing. And then we're going to look next week um, at verses 18 through 32, this, 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 that humanity is trapped in this exchange of God's truth in idolatry. And that downward spiral. Then chapter 2, 
For the Jews who would be nodding and saying, yeah, that's kind of how it is, the Gentiles. I mean, just look at their downers worshiping. Snakes! I mean, it's a mess. God writes chapter 2 and says, you, Jew, are inexcusable because God has entrusted you with the oracles of God. The very word of God. He holds you to a higher standard. And by the way, how did that work out? What did you end up doing? You despise God's law, they live just like the Gentiles. And then chapter 3, he brings it all together and he says, in the first 20 verses, here's the situation. You all stand guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory, the, the weight of God's beauty. And then in chapter 3, 21 through 31, he says, But God has made the way through Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 4, he says, And this was all along part of God's promise. God had chosen someone named Abraham, and Abraham gave an example to us to break the, the new covenant through, and he, and he trusted in what God had said in his promise plan by faith, and this is how you enter into God's plan, God's promise plan, through faith. And then in chapter 5, he says, This gives you peace with God. In chapter 5, then he starts to unfold how it works out in our, in, our, in, our, in our new life. And then he stops and he says, and remember, this goes way back. This is ancient. This is our biggest problem. This goes all the way back to one man, Adam, where we sinned with Adam. And the problem is not uh, our circumstances. The problem is we all have Adam in our bones. That's what's wrong with us. Deeply embedded in our DNA, we, 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 we rebel against God and his plans for us. But God gave the one who was obedient, the second Adam. And he provided for us the righteousness of Christ. And so he's, he's poured out this kindness, this undeserved generosity of, of, of what we didn't deserve here, of, of, of the beauty of the gift of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And then in chapter 6 he says, And since you received this, this is what the new life is. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with him in baptism. The new life. So walk in that. And then in chapter 7 he says, this is a monkey wrench of the Christian life. And we don't unleash the spirit in our lives. And the things I want to do, I don't end up doing. The things I don't want to do, I, that's what I end up doing. And then Paul says, but thanks be to God who has delivered us through Jesus Christ. And he talks a little bit more in chapter 8 about putting your life under the reign of the Spirit now that you've been redeemed. And God's eternal purpose is in all of this. And how he's working everything in our lives as believers to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing under creation. And then in chapters 9 through 11 with these Jews and Gentiles in this church here. You see what had happened was during Claudius, perhaps, uh, the reign of Claudius, the Roman emperor, uh, he had, he had, he, uh, history reports that he had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And there had been a church that had started there, apparently. We don't know if it was through some of the um, uh, mission that had come through Pentecost, as some of the Jewish pilgrims had come down to Jerusalem, the Feast of Pentecost, and returned to Jerusalem. But a church had started there. The Spirit had begun to work there. And it was probably predominantly Jewish. And then they had got kicked out. And so what had happened there after those four years of them being kicked out of the city of Rome was it probably developed into more of a Gentile culture church. 
And then when Claudius died, the Jews were allowed to return back to back to uh, Rome. And when they did, all of a sudden there's a shift in leadership here, right? Their church was different. The cultural norms that they were used to and eating kosher and these different things that they had grown up with was different. What were they going to do? So God says in Romans 9 verse 11, this is how you're actually linked together, Jew and Gentile. And God's still got great purposes for Israel here. But this is how you're linked together. You see, God took the olive tree of Israel and he broke off some of those branches and he grafted in there the Gentiles. And this is how you have the same roots here. This is how then you're to get along. This is how you see God's purposes here and not be at one another, but be united in God's purposes in the gospel. And so in chapter 12, he says, because of God's uh, uh, amazing plan and his mercies, this is how you're to respond to the gospel. You're supposed to die as a living sacrifice. You're supposed to put yourself, your whole life, on that altar. And you're supposed to be raised to the life of Jesus and not be conformed to the world's patterns and the bickering and the backbiting and the fighting, etc. here. But you're supposed to live this out. Implication of the gospel of love, chapter 12. 13, he repeats this. Talks about the law is fulfilled and loving God and loving our neighbor. And then in chapter 14, he says, this is how you work out items of disputable matters. Things that you might have disagreements with. That ultimately aren't game changers. But the way you deal with it is the game changer. Into your surrender, into your, you're to prefer one another above you, and you're to, you're to serve. And the example in chapter 15 is Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. And we're to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us in chapter 15, so that in chapter 15, 7 through 13, with one voice, Jew and Gentile can glorify God, standing shoulder to shoulder. This is the this is the goal, the promised plan of God in the gospel. A proper way to glorify God since before we had come so far short of the word of God. And so that's what Paul's trying to get across here so that he has another Antioch west or Rome. Because he says, guys, I haven't made it to you yet, but I want to get there to Rome. I've heard so many things about you and I can't wait to see you because... I, I, I want to. I want to I have you participate with me in, in showing God's uh, God's faithfulness here in collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem to be a blessing to our Jewish roots, and at the same time to go beyond to Spain for the progress of the gospel, the multiplication of it, and to see it spread worldwide in chapter 15, and pray that that happens. He says. And so you have these life cycles in the Book of Romans: death, life, death. Life. By one man's death came life. Over and over again. And Paul's writing to, to increase faith in Jesus here to, to result in eternal life. Here's what I want us to see here. That Paul is instructing Jews and Gentiles that the way to life is by looking to Jesus in faith. And then imitating him in his death and his life. There's little talk of what you and I deserve besides the wrath of God. What's owed to me in the book of Romans? That paradigm is destroyed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul is instructing Jesus and Gentiles that the only way to peace is by faith in a crucified Messiah and a life that embodies his resurrection. And so when Paul is thinking of this division that's existing in Rome between Jews and Gentiles, where does his mind go but to the gospel of Christ? That the solution to strife and malice is two deaths, a double death, the death of Christ and our own death to our old lives. And we're to embody this message. We're to be the aroma of death to the world so that people can find true life through looking to the death of the Savior of the world and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Romans 1, 8 through 15, these forgotten verses of the Bible, they help unlock by Paul's writing this letter. And I'm going to try to help us grasp it here by comparing it to a race. A race. Um, my uh, college roommate and one of my close friends, uh, his, his cousin was Matt Kenseth, is still Matt Kenseth, who is a NASCAR driver. Um, he was the 17 car, I'm not sure what he is, I think he's retired now. Um, but uh, um, he could get me into a NASCAR race uh, anytime he wanted. The problem was, it was that's kind of hard for me because they're on Sundays. And uh, he tried to get me into the New Hampshire race there, but that was, just wasn't going to happen. But I want you to think about the NASCAR race here, any kind of race. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at these verses here with this, with this comparison. That there is a driver, there is progress in the race, and there is an engine that drives this vehicle to its destination. This first thing I want you to see is verses 8 through 10, where Paul says, First, I thank my God for Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request that by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. I want you to notice those words there. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. God is my witness who I serve in the spirit and uh, the gospel of his Son. That I'm praying to God and making this request. And so what Paul is recognizing in this is this fact, first of all, that gospel work, that making disciples through the gospel by evangelizing, and then uh, when they come to Christ, the edifying that comes up through the roots in the gospel here. That gospel work is like this race car that God has a destination it's going to here. And he wants us to understand, first of all, that God is at work. Look what he already did in the church at Rome. Paul has never seen them. He's never been there. And God's doing the work without Paul. God's in the driver's seat. And so I want you to understand, as you're engaging in gospel work, at whatever level that may be, because we're all called the gospel work of making disciples, that God is in the driver's seat. This is why Paul doesn't say, it depends on me. This is why Paul says, I'm thanking God for what he's done. And your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. This is exciting to Paul. And anybody who's involved in gospel work, this is, this is thrilling to the soul to see that there is a genuineness that is starting to catch notice through the community. Paul says, this is my task, I'm with gospel work, I'm serving with my spirit of gospel of the Son, and, I'm, and, and though I can't be with you in your face, 
in presence. Without ceasing, I'm making mention of you always in my prayers. So, I've been asking God if there's some way I can deceive you. I can be with you. So the progress of the gospel continues. Never forget that gospel work is participating with the driver. It's the driver. Paul's just like, I'm so glad that I can be here with you along for the ride. It's amazing that God allowed him to continue with this. We saw that in verses 1 through 7 last week. But secondly, <clears throat> there's a tracking here of the progress. The, the race car is no good just sitting on the starting line here. He wants to see things happen. And because God is in the driver's seat, and because of that first point that God has allowed him to participate in this, he is thrilled to death to be able to participate. And so he wants to see something happen. And notice what he says in verse 11. I want to see you so that I can impart to you some spiritual gift. This is the real key to understanding why he's writing Romans here. These, 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 these verses, 11 through 13. Uh, why? Why, why is he going to impart some gift? Look at the text in verse 11. So that you may be established. Established. What does it mean to be established? There's a rooting, right? A process. There's a foundation here. There's, that word actually is the Greek word sterizo, and it means a strengthening. So he can be strengthened. And then he doesn't just stop there, but he goes a step further. Why do I want to impart a spiritual gift? Why do I want you to be established? So that I can be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. You can kind of pass over that phrase without thinking about the implications of that. And this is it. Paul says, now think about Paul. Who's Paul? Who is this guy? Was there a guy who had a better grasp on the gospel? Was there a guy who had a better grasp of the Old Testament scriptures and how they connected to the fulfilled promises in the Lord Jesus Christ? Was there a guy who had it used more than the Apostle Paul? What does he say? He says, to these people who had a problem, he's addressing them, he says, I can be encouraged by you. You're encouraging me. And I'm going to be encouraged together with you. Yeah, I hope I can establish you and encourage you and build you up. But you know what? Here's an exciting side note of gospel work. God uses the people that you're pouring into to encourage you. To build you up. And you certainly might be the principal disciple maker in their life. At the same time, God can use someone who you're discipling to surprisingly discipling. I've seen this happen in my own life. Being encouraged. That I need to be encouraged together with you by mutual faith, both of you and me. And the idea here is Paul saying, we need each other. That's why I want to see you. We need each other. I have something to give to you. And boy, you have something to give to me. And encourages his faith, Paul says. I'm going to encourage your faith. And I wonder perhaps if you've understood that, that one of the side benefits is if we're discipling and doing gospel work or making disciples, evangelism and edification is that there's a way that God builds us up as well. There are 
there are comfort zones that he takes us out of and builds us up. Paul says, I want to see some progress here. And so gospel work is laboring for progress. You see, the gospel has three phases to it. You can kind of look at it this way. The gospel has a past tense. We have been saved. The gospel also has a present tense. We are being saved. We call that the stage of sanctification. We're all in yet. And then because you are all sitting here and looking at me today, and you all have an expression of life on your face, there's a, there's a phase we haven't seen yet. Because we're still alive. And it's the phase of glorification. We will be saved. We'll be perfectly like Christ. God saves us through Christ to be like Christ. He's making us like Christ. And there's going to be a day where he can put a check by that box. Conform to his son. There's a progress here. And this is why he's writing Romans here. So I can impart you some spiritual gifts to your strength. And so I can encourage together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me, Jew and Gentile, the mutualness here. The oneness, the unity in Christ. So that everything comes under the feet of Jesus Christ. So that he says in verse 13, I want you guys to know, I've been trying to get to you. I really have. It's been hard. I've been hindered until now. And here's why I want to see you. So that I have some fruit among you. Just as God has allowed me to do with the other Gentiles. So that Rome becomes an Antioch. For the progress and multiplication of the gospel here. He wants to see progress on the track here. And so gospel work is laboring for progress. It's a hard work. It was so hard for him to write his longest letter. 7,000 words. Compared to an average letter in that day of 87 words. At a cost of what they say might have been $2,000 for the materials of his crime, etc. here. He wants to see progress on the track with this car of gospel work. Fruit among you. It's laboring for progress. What he's saying is this. He's thanking the maker of heaven and earth. That there is a community in Rome, right under the nose of Caesar, who give allegiance to Jesus as their king and savior, who've been grasped by the vision of a different kingdom, a different hope, who share a different faith in the world. And that's the center of it here. Faith, belief, and trust in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul knows that God wants to continue to see that bear fruit. He tells the Colossians this too. You receive the word of truth. You receive the gospel. Colossians 1. Check this out. And the gospel is bearing fruit. That's what he wants to see. Why can he do this? Well, he knows this because there's several Christians who are now in Rome who are friends of his. Paul and Priscilla. Some are even his relatives if you read the end of the letter in chapter 16. And so here you have this picture here. There's a number of houses in this empire capital of Rome where Christians would gather for worship, prayer, teaching, and breaking of bread. There probably at this time were not more than 100 Christians in a city of at least a million inhabitants meeting in different households as you read chapter 16. It could have even been less. There's plenty of work. 
There was plenty of fruit that was going to come from this. And then thirdly and finally, what I would like you to see is that this gospel work is built around the engine. Here's perhaps the most famous of the verses in Romans 1, right? 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. By the way, I feel sorry for the guy who has to read 18 to 32 next week. It's not very, uh, not, not very positive here, uh, but uh, it's, it's God's word and it's going to help us change here. Um, so whoever that is next week, you got you got a task before you here. The third thing I want you to see is this: that thirdly, gospel work is built around the engine. Everything that he said, eleven through thirteen, what he wants to see, the strengthening, the imparting, the mutual, uh, the mutual sharing of this faith here, the the fruit here. What's holding all this up? What's the bedrock of it all? And what's the engine of moving this to its goal here around the track is verse 16 and 17. For the reason this bearing fruit, what is it? The good news of the Son of God. He says in verse 14 and 15, he's a debtor. To the Greeks, the barbarians, the Gentiles, to the wise and the unwise. That's what's driving him. Somebody asked the great missionary Hudson Taylor, who labored in China for decades, through many trials, God used to strike a match and see things take light in China. When he came back to England one time, somebody said, Wow, you just must really love the Chinese people. To do what you do there in China. Your devotion. And Hudson Taylor thought about that for a minute. And then he said, no, I do. And the reason I do what I do is because I love God. I love the gospel. And Paul says, I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor of grace. I can never pay it back. But God showed me in his kindness. Boy, it motivates me. Boy, it gets me going in the morning. That's what you saw in verses 1 through 7. That was the first thing he saw when his eyes opened up was I'm separated of the gospel. And so he says, Well, because I'm a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians, I'm going to take every ounce of my being as much as in me is, <coughs> and I am ready, I am eager. To proclaim the good news to you guys in Rome also. Why? Because he knows it's going to strengthen the church, it's going to strengthen their evangelism, it's going to reach others and bring others into the kingdom, and it's going to establish a strong church or a base in the state. Why is he ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also? He says, verse 16, so I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes in Jew first, and also in the Greek. Here's the thing. Paul understands he's writing to these believers who he wants to see become better and better missionaries to the lost. 
Strip down your pride. Strip it off. Learn how to relate to one another to express the love that Jesus sends to epitomize his disciples. And support a gospel partnership for work beyond their locality. He knows that they are not going to move beyond the gospel. They are to move more deeply into the gospel. Colossians 2, 6-8 tells us that we are to let our roots grow deep in Christ. Rooted and built up in Christ, the gospel of his Son, to be established, to not be uh, maneuvering through the first principles of the world, the elementary basic values of the world, but in the philosophy of men of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel ignited your Christian life and you received it in faith, didn't it? It translated you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It puts you in the race. And it's the fuel that keeps you going and growing every day. Real change cannot come apart from the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm ashamed of what? But think of yourself in Rome. Proud. The power of the world. And some guy tells you, or some girl tells you, that there is a poor Jewish carpenter that Rome crucified. As the only way to God. Who came back to life. Romans already had no appreciation for the Jews and Crucifixion was the lowest form of execution given to a, to a criminal. Why put your faith in a Jew who was crucified and supposedly alive again? Rome, a proud city. Where did the gospel come from? It came from Jerusalem, which in Israel was a big deal. But to Rome, Jerusalem was one of those little colonies that, that Rome had conquered. The Christians in that day weren't among the elite of that society. They were common people, many slaves. Rome had known many philosophers and philosophies. Why pay attention to a fable here about a Jew who rose from the dead? And so Paul here, a tent maker, who says, I'm going to go give this message to you in Rome. He's almost laughing in Rome. But Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 about that. It's the wisdom of God. Because we have confidence in the message. And why do we have confidence? Because look what he says. For it is important word. Not it was, not it used to be, as we speak. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, deliverance, rescue to everyone who believes. Where did this go? What's the, what's the roots of this gospel? It's the gospel of Christ. If Caesar handed out a message, that message would immediately get the attention of the Romans. But this message is from and about the very exalted and high and reigning Son of God. The gospel of God, he said in Romans 1. How could Paul be ashamed of such a message that he had seen at work in his own life? That he had seen in the work of the churches that, were, that had begun. 
It came from God. It centered in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is not a domestic, tame, we good news here. In the 1930s, a missionary told this story to illustrate how different cultures water down the claims of Jesus. And he said, when he was a young missionary, he used to spend one evening each week in the monastery of the Ramakrishna Mission, in a town where he lived in India, sitting on the floor with Hindu monks and studying with them. In the great wall of the monastery, there is a portrait of great religious teachers of mankind, and among them is a portrait of Jesus. And each year on December 25th, they would offer worship before that picture. He was honored in worship, Jesus, as one of the many manifestations of deity in the course of human history. And what he says about it is this. Jesus had become just one figure in the endless cycle of karma, the wheel of being in which we were all caught up. He had been domesticated into the Hindu worldview. That view remained unchallenged. He says, it was only slowly through many experiences that I began to see that something of this domestication had taken place in my own that I too had been more ready to seek a reasonable Christianity. A Christianity that could be defended on the terms of <coughs> the whole intellectual formation as a 20th century Englishman, rather than something which placed my whole intellectual formation under a new and critical light. I too had been guilty of domesticating the gospel. How does it happen? When you start to see Jesus as something you add to your life. Another thing. Try this, right? But no, look what it says. It's the power of God to salvation. It delivers from the power and penalty penalty of sin. It did what it brought you to Christ. It will continue as it sanctifies you. And it will ultimately in heaven. Delivers from the penalty and power of sin. And friends, don't just sit in the starting line here in the race car. Get going with the power of the gospel. It's like... How many of you bought Christmas gifts and your kids played in the box? Right? Go out with your little guy, something to play with, and you thought was a perfect gift. Tear open that gift, it's open, sits it over there, plays in the box, right? Drives you crazy. If you're one of God's children, you open the box, you got the gift job. You'll be given the most awesome gift God could ever give. Delivers you from the penalty and power of sin. It's beautiful from every view. What are you doing? It's the power of God for salvation. It's to be multiplied and shared, and it's to be at work in you and bearing fruit. Because look what he says at the key verse in the whole book of Romans, in verse 17. This power of the gospel. This deliverance the gospel gives to those who trust, to those who rely, to everyone that believes. To the Jew first, because it's through the Jew the gospel came, and also to the Greek, the whole world. He says in verse 17, For therein, embedded in this power of God, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
The gospel has been revealed as the only way for the righteousness of God. Certainly that declared goodness of God. The perfection and beauty of all that he is. And all that he's ever done in purity. And how man can be made right with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. That then starts to work out in your own life. Certainly the status that you received at faith. God has declared you righteous through Christ. And then our walk is to live in line with that, right? Walk worthy of this vocation. This righteousness that has been delivered to you, that's to come out like a hastily packed suitcase, packed to the brim, just explode out of you. The gospel is revealed as the only way. Why? Why the only way? Why is it the only one and only solution? Well, you think about different ailments that need particular cures, right? If you increase the air pressure in your car, that's not going to fix your carburetor, right? Aspirin does not dissolve a tumor. Cutting up your credit cards will not wipe out the debt that's already owed. If your water pipes are leaking, you call a plumber, not an oncologist. A plumber, however, will not cure cancer. And so there are adequate solutions to solve the problem that needs to be solved. And the gospel solves our singular problem of heart rebellion, of the broken image of God. We've been destroyed as our friendship with God has been broken by our will, ruined by rebellion. We're guilty, enslaved, lost, and dead. All of us. There's no other way of escape. And God's provided it through the righteousness of God that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you notice he says, it's revealed from faith to faith. There's different views on what that phrase exactly means. And I land on the view that is a reference of this growth of faith in the individual here. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Everyone operates on faith in something. Did you know that? An atheist who says he has no faith is operating on faith in something. Everybody trusts something. But what is this faith here that we're to continue to see? get deeper here to enable us to appreciate and enjoy more and more of the righteousness of God. You can think of it here in some stages here, what Christ did on the cross. Think about it like this. In the gospel, you believe that God has promised forgiveness of sins through the gospel. And you trust that promise. But you have to respond to that promise. Think about it like this. Imagine a bottle of penicillin, alright? Invented by Alexander Fleming. Great Britain. Responsible for saving the lives of countless individuals who would have died from other kinds of blood poison. You take that bottle, you're going to die without this penicillin. The infection will destroy you. First, you have to accept that that bottle exists, right? And you may trust in its ability to cure blood poisoning. But nothing will change unless I receive that drug for which it contains a solution. I have to allow it 
to destroy the bacteria that are killing me. Otherwise, I have not benefited from recognizing this bottle and understanding its abilities, right? And it's this element of faith that is important about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, he says, for everyone who believes, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the just shall live by faith. Faith forges a link between what Jesus has done in the cross and resurrection and ourselves. It unites us with the risen Christ and makes available to us everything he gained through his life and death and resurrection. And so to the unbeliever here this morning, I would say to you from this passage here, repent and believe the gospel. Receive the medicine, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without it, you will see in verses 18 through 32, you, like all of us, are under the wrath of God. Unto eternal damnation away from God. The Bible describes it as hellfire that burns forever and ever away from the presence of God. Receive the righteousness of God that is available to be counted against your sin. And the believers, I want to remind you of this. What is your heart believing today? Where are you putting your trust in today? This God and this gospel that marched on through Rome and the centuries after and the centuries after to us today is the gospel that will march on after November 3rd and beyond. We'll still build this church around the globe until Jesus returns. And whatever circumstances and issues you face that provide you anxiety, you need to water that tree with faith. You need to see God through, it, through, through faith, fertilize and grow that little sapling into a big oak, like that Psalm 1 tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Some of you are wrestling with devastating circumstances, of whom you don't have the liberty to share with anybody. Some of you have lesser circumstances that are hard. Wherever you might find yourself on the spectrum here. Fear, discouragement, anxiety, choice to sin, belief, reveal a belief in you. You're believing a lie instead of the truth of the gospel of Christ. You might say in your head, yep, Jesus died for my sins and I'm saved here. But are you living out the ramifications of what that means? That nothing can separate me from the love of God. I'm secure in the Lord. I have power over circumstances here. Circumstances will come. I'm not saying you can change your circumstances and necessarily everything. But what I am saying is this that Jesus' presence through the gospel gives you power to say no to your wrong reactions to it. Is God powerful? How has He shown that? And the gospel of the Son that you received. He made you a new creation. What did that do? What does that continue to do from the presence and power of sin? 
Will God continue this work? Did that did your circumstances change the gospel of Christ? Of the deciding factor of Christ, the Son of God, crucified and risen again for all of history? Where is your trust? Is the gospel powerful enough to save and sanctify other people? Especially those people, whoever that might be. Is it powerful enough to work to be at work and young and old? Am I living in my perceptions? Or I am or am I the just, declared righteous by God, live by faith in the Son of God? You can walk in life fearing no evil, saying no to sin because of the power of Christ in you, because you have a powerful God of salvation. I'll close with this. That phrase that he anchors this good news in, the just shall live by faith, is from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Where in this spring, we looked at the book of Habakkuk, we saw that Habakkuk asked the question, what are you doing, God? And God said, I'm allowing these things to happen, and i got some other news for you. It's going to get worse. It's not what Habakkuk wanted here. But it's going to get worse. The Babylonians were actually going to come, take them into captivity. And here are the things they're going to do. And then he said to Habakkuk, But the just, the righteous ones of God, can see beyond that, see beyond even the immediate future, and fix eyes on eternity and what God will do in his restoring work. And the just shall live by faith. And in Habakkuk 3, which only three short chapters, at the end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk writes a song, a song of praise. And he says, Though the fig tree doesn't bring forth figs, though my cupboards are empty, though my situation is poor, I praise God. Why could Habakkuk say that? You could say it for the same reason that Paul can write Romans 1, 8 through 17, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. The power of restored relationship with God that can never be taken away and produces fruit. So understand that God is the driver of this race car of gospel work. And we get to participate with that. And the goal of participating with that is to see some progress for the sake of the gospel, certainly in our own lives and those who God allows us to touch through this good news. But the engine of it all, because it is gospel work is the good news of Jesus dying for our sins providing forgiveness and a secure relationship with God by his resurrection making us a new creation and living in light of that let's pray